0: Chapter Two of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Seven, Part Three. Murat by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, Corsica. Once more on the same beach at Bonnet, in the same bay where he had awaited the boat in vain, still attended by his band of faithful followers, we find Murat on the twenty-second August in the same year it was no longer by napoleon that he was threatened it was by louis the eighteenth that he was proscribed it was no longer the military loyalty of marshal Brune, who came with tears in his eyes to give notice of the orders he had received but the ungrateful hatred of monsieur de riviere who had set a price forty-eight thousand francs on the head of the man who had saved his own conspiracy of pichegru monsieur de riviere had indeed written to the ex-king of naples advising him to abandon himself to the good faith and humanity of the king of france but his vague invitation had not seemed sufficient guarantee to the outlaw especially on the part of one who had allowed the assassination almost before his eyes of a man who carried a safe-conduct signed by himself murat knew of the massacre of the Mamelukes at marseilles the assassination of brune at avignon he had been warned the day before by the police of toulon that a formal order for his arrest was out thus it was impossible that he should remain any longer in france corsica with its hospitable towns its friendly mountains its impenetrable forests was hardly fifty leagues distant he must reach corsica and wait in its towns mountains and forests until the crowned heads of europe should decide the fate of the man they had called brother for seven years at ten o'clock at night the king went down to the shore the boat which was to take him across had not reached the rendezvous but this time there was not the slightest fear that it would fail the bay had been reconnoitred during the day by three men devoted to the fallen fortunes of the king messieurs blancard langlade and donadieu all three naval officers, men of ability and warm heart, who had sworn by their own lives to convey Murat to Corsica, and who were in fact risking their lives in order to accomplish their promise. Murat saw the deserted shore without uneasiness. Indeed, this delay afforded him a few more moments of patriotic satisfaction. On this little patch of land, this strip of sand, the unhappy exile clung to his mother France. For once his foot touched the vessel which was to carry him away, his separation from France would be long, if not eternal. He started suddenly amidst these thoughts and sighed. He had just perceived a sail gliding over the waves like a phantom through the transparent darkness of the southern night. Then a sailor's song was heard. Murat recognized the appointed signal and answered it by burning the priming of a pistol, and the boat immediately ran inshore but as she drew three feet of water she was obliged to stop ten or twelve feet from the beach. Two men dashed into the water and reached the beach, while a third remained crouching in the stern sheets wrapped in his boat cloak. "'Well, my good friends,' said the king, going towards Blancard and Langlade, until he felt the waves wet his feet. "'The moment has come, is it not? The wind is favourable. The sea calm. We must get to sea.' yes answered langlade yes we must start and yet perhaps it would be wiser to wait till tomorrow why asked murat langlade did not answer but turning toward the west he raised his hand and according to the habit of sailors he whistled to call the wind that's no good said donadieu who had remained in the boat here are the first gusts you will have more than you know what to do with in a minute take care langlade take care sometimes in calling the wind you wake up a storm murat started for he thought that this warning which rose from the sea had been given him by the spirit of the waters but the impression was a passing one and he recovered himself in a moment all the better he said the more wind we have the faster we shall go yes answered langlade but God knows where it will take us if it goes on shifting like this. "'Don't start tonight, sire,' said Blancard, adding his voice to those of his two companions. "'But why not?' "'You see that bank of black cloud there, don't you? Well, at sunset it was hardly visible. Now it covers a good part of the sky. In an hour there won't be a star to be seen.' "'Are you afraid?' asked Murat afraid answered langlada of what of the storm i might as well ask if your majesty is afraid of a cannon-ball we have demurred solely on your account sire do you think sea-dogs like ourselves would delay on account of the storm then let us go cried murat with a sigh Goodbye, marouin god alone can reward you for what you have done for me i am at your orders gentlemen at these words the two sailors seized the king and, and hoisted him onto their shoulders, and carried him into the sea. In another moment he was on board. Langlade and Blancard sprang in behind him. Donadieu remained at the helm. The two other officers undertook the management of the boat and began their work by unfurling the sails. Immediately the pinnace seemed to rouse herself like a horse at the touch of a spur. The sailors cast a careless glance back and Murat, feeling that they were sailing away, turned towards his host and called for a last time. "'You have your route as far as Trieste. Don't forget my wife. Good-bye, good-bye.' "'God keep you, sire,' murmured Merouin. And for some time, thanks to the white sail which gleamed through the darkness, he could follow with his eyes the boat which was rapidly disappearing, At last it vanished altogether. Marouin lingered on the shore, though he could see nothing. Then he heard a cry, made faint by the distance. It was Murat's last adieu to France. When Monsieur Marouin was telling me these details one evening, on the very spot where it all happened, though twenty years had passed, he remembered clearly the slightest incidents of the embarkation that night. From that moment he assured me that a presentiment of misfortune seized him. He could not tear himself away from the shore, and several times he longed to call the king back. But, like a man in a dream, he opened his mouth without being able to utter a sound. He was afraid of being thought foolish, and it was not until one o'clock, that is, two and a half hours after the departure of the boat, that he went home with a sad and heavy heart the adventurous navigators had taken the course from toulon to bastia and at first it seemed to the king that the sailors predictions were belied the wind instead of getting up fell little by little and two hours after the departure the boat was rocking without moving forward or backward on the waves which were sinking from moment to moment Murat sadly watched the phosphorescent furrow trailing behind the little boat he had nerved himself to face a storm but not a dead calm, and without even interrogating his companions, of whose uneasiness he took no account, he lay down in the boat, wrapped in his cloak, closing his eyes as if he were asleep, and following the flow of his thoughts, which were far more tumultuous than that of the waters. Soon the two sailors, thinking him asleep, joined the pilot, and sitting down beside the helm, they began to consult together. "'You were wrong, Langlade said Donadieu, in choosing a craft like this which is either too small or else too big in an open boat we can never weather a storm and without oars we can never make any way in a calm for god i had no choice i was obliged to take what i could get and if it had not been for the season for tunny fishing i might not even have got this wretched pinnace or rather i should have had to go into the harbor to find it and they keep such a sharp lookout that I might well have gone in without coming out again. "'At least it is seaworthy,' said Blancard. "'Pardieu, do you know what nails and planks are when they have been soaked in seawater for ten years? On any ordinary occasion a man would rather not go in her from Marseilles to the Chateau d'If, but on an occasion like this one would willingly go round the world in a nutshell.' "'Hush!' said Donadieu, The sailors listened. A distant growl was heard, but it was so faint that only the experienced ear of a sailor could have distinguished it. Yes, yes, said Langlada. It is a warning for those who have legs or wings to regain the homes and nests that they ought never to have left. Are we far from the islands? asked Donadieu quickly. About a mile off, steer for them what for asked murat looking up to put in there sire if we can no no cried murat i will not land except in corsica i will not leave france again besides the sea is calm and the wind is getting up again down with the sails shouted donadieu instantly Langlade and blancard jumped forward to carry out the order The sail slid down the mast and fell in a heap in the bottom of the boat. What are you doing? cried Murat. Do you forget that I am king and that I command you? Sire, said Donadieu, there is a king more powerful than you. God, there is a voice which drowns yours, the voice of the tempest. Let us save your majesty, if possible, and demand nothing more of us. Just then a flash of lightning quivered along the horizon. A clap of thunder nearer than the first one was heard. A light foam appeared on the surface of the water, and the boat trembled like a living thing. Murat began to understand the danger was approaching. He then got up smiling, threw his hat behind him, shook back his long hair, and breathed in the storm like the smell of powder. The soldier was ready for the battle. "'Sire,' said Donadieu, You have seen many a battle but perhaps you have never watched a storm if you are curious about it cling to the mast for you have a fine opportunity now what ought i do said murat can i not help you in any way no not just now sire later you will be useful at the pumps during this dialogue the storm had drawn near it rushed on the travelers like a war-horse breathing out fire and wind through its nostrils, neighing like thunder and scattering the foam of the waves beneath its feet. Donadieu turned the rudder. The boat yielded as if it understood the necessity for prompt obedience and presented the poop to the shock of wind. Then the squall passed, leaving the sea quivering, and everything was calm again. The storm took breath. "'Will that gust be all?' asked Murat no your majesty that was the advance guard only the body of the army will be up directly and are you not going to prepare for it asked the king gaily what could we do said donadue we have not an inch of canvas to catch the wind and as long as we do not make too much water we shall float like a cork look out sire indeed a second hurricane was on its way bringing rain and lightning it was swifter than the first donadieu endeavored to repeat the same maneuver but he could not turn before the wind struck the boat and the mast bent like a reed and the boat shipped a wave to the pumps cried donadieu sire now is the moment to help us blancard langlade and murat seized their hats and began to bail out the boat the position of the four men was terrible It lasted three hours. At dawn the wind fell, but the sea was still high. They began to feel the need of food. All the provisions had been spoiled by seawater. Only the wine had been preserved from its contact. The king took a bottle and swallowed a little wine first, Then he passed it to his companions, who drank in their turn. Necessity had overcome etiquette. By chance, Langlade had on him a few chocolates which he offered to the king. Murat divided them into four equal parts, and forced his companions to take their shares. Then when the meal was over they steered for Corsica, but the boat had suffered so much that it was improbable that it would reach Bastia. The whole day passed without making ten miles. The boat was kept under the jib, as they dared not hoist the mainsail. And the wind was so variable that much time was lost in humoring its caprices by evening the boat had drawn a considerable amount of water it penetrated between the boards the handkerchiefs of the crew served to plug up the leaks and night which was descending in mournful gloom wrapped them a second time in darkness prostrated with fatigue murat fell asleep blancard and langlada took their places beside donadieu and the three men who seemed insensible to the calls of sleep and fatigue watched over his slumbers the night was calm enough apparently below grumblings were heard now and then the three sailors looked at each other strangely and then at the king who was sleeping at the bottom of the boat his cloak soaked with sea water sleeping as soundly as he had slept on the sands of egypt or the snows of russia then one of them got up and went to the other end of the boat whistling between his teeth a Provençal air. Then, after examining the sky, the waves, and the boat, he went back to his comrades and sat down muttering, Impossible! Except by a miracle, we shall never make the land. The night passed through all its phases. At dawn there was a vessel in sight. A sail! cried Donadieu. A sail! At this cry the king awoke and soon a little trading-brig hove in sight, going from Corsica to Toulon. Donadue steered for the brig, Blancard hoisted enough sail to work the boat, and Langlade ran to the prow and held up the king's cloak on the end of a sort of harpoon. Soon the voyagers perceived that they had been sighted. The brig went about to approach them, and in ten minutes they found themselves within fifty yards of it. The captain appeared in the bows. Then the king hailed him and offered him a substantial reward if he would receive them on board and take them to Corsica. The captain listened to the proposal, then immediately turning to the crew. He gave an order in an undertone which Donadieu could not hear, but which he understood probably by the gesture, for he instantly gave Langlade and Blancard the order to make away from the schooner. They obeyed with the unquestioning promptitude of sailors, but the king stamped his foot what are you doing donadu what are you about don't you see that she is coming up to us yes upon my soul she is do as i say langlade ready blancard yes she is coming upon us and perhaps i was too late in seeing this that's all right that's all right my part now then he forced over the rudder giving it so violent a jerk that the boat forced to change her course suddenly, seemed to rear and plunge like a horse struggling against the curb. Finally, she obeyed. A huge wave raised by the giant bearing down on the pinnace carried it on like a leaf, and the brig passed within a few feet of the stern. Ah! Traitor! cried the king, who had only just begun to realize the intention of the captain. At the same time he pulled a pistol from his belt, crying, Board her! Board her! and tried to fire on the brig but the powder was wet and would not catch the king was furious and went on shouting board her board her yes the wretch or rather the imbecile said donadieu he took us for pirates and wanted to sink us as if we needed him to do that indeed a single glance at the boat showed that she was beginning to make water the effort to escape, which Donadue had made, had strained the boat terribly. Then the water was pouring in by a number of leaks between the planks. They had to begin again bailing out with their hats, and went on at it for ten hours. Then for the second time Donadieu heard the consoling cry, "'A sail! A sail!' The king and his companions immediately left off bailing. They hoisted the sails again and steered for the vessel which was coming toward them and neglected to fight against the water, which was rising rapidly. From that time forth it was a question of time, of minutes, of seconds. It was a question of reaching the ship before the boat foundered. The vessel, however, seemed to understand the desperate position of the men imploring help. She was coming up at full speed. Langlade was the first to recognize her. She was a government felucca plying between Toulon and Bastia, Langlada was a friend of the captain, and he called his name with the penetrating voice of desperation, and he was heard. It was high time. The water kept on rising, and the king and his companions were already up to their knees. The boat groaned in its death struggle. It stood still and began to go round and round. Just then, two or three ropes thrown from the felucca fell upon the boat. The king seized one, sprang forward, and reached the rope ladder. He was saved.' Blancard and Langlade immediately followed. Donadue waited until the last, as was his duty, and as he put his foot on the ladder he felt the other boat begin to go under. He turned round with all a sailor's calm and saw the gulf open its jaws beneath him, and then the shattered boat capsized and immediately disappeared. Five seconds more and the four men who were saved would have been lost beyond recall. These details are well known to the people of Toulon, and I have heard them myself a score of times during the two stays that I made in that town during 1834 and 1835. Some of the people who related them had them first-hand from Langlade and Donadieu themselves. Murat had hardly gained the deck before a man came and fell at his feet. It was a mameluke whom he had taken to Egypt in former years, and had since married at Castellamare. Business affairs had taken him to Marseilles, where by a miracle he had escaped the massacre of his comrades and in spite of his disguise and fatigue he had recognized his former master his exclamations of joy prevented the king from keeping up his incognito then senator casabianca captain oletta a nephew of prince Bacchiochi, a staff paymaster called brecco who were themselves fleeing from the massacres of the south were all on board the vessel and improvising a little court they greeted the king with the title of your majesty it had been a sudden embarkation it brought about a swift change he was no longer murat the exile he was joachim the king of naples the exile's refuge disappeared with the foundered boat in its place naples and its magnificent gulf appeared on the horizon like a marvellous mirage and no doubt the primary idea of the fatal expedition of Calabria was originated in the first days of exaltation which followed those hours of anguish. The king, however, still uncertain of the welcome which awaited him in Corsica, took the name of the Count of Campomele, and it was under this name that he landed at Bastia on the 25th August. But this precaution was useless. Three days after his arrival, not a soul but knew of his presence in the town." crowds gathered at once, and cries of Long live Joachim were heard, and the king, fearing to disturb the public peace, left Bastia the same evening with his three companions and his mameluke. Two hours later he arrived at Viscovato, and knocked at the door of General Francesc Cicchidi, who had been in his service during his whole reign, and who, leaving Naples at the same time as the king, had gone to Corsica with his wife to live with his father-in-law, Monsieur Colonna Chicaldi. He was in the middle of supper when a servant told him that a stranger was asking to speak to him. He went out and found Murat wrapped in a military greatcoat, a sailor's cap drawn down on his head, his beard grown long, and wearing a soldier's trousers, boots, and gaiters. The general stood still in amazement. Murat fixed his great dark eyes on him, and then folding his arms. Franceschetti, said he, have you room at your table for your general? who is hungry have you a shelter under your roof for your king who is an exile franceschetti looked astonished as he recognized joachim and could only answer him by falling on his knees and kissing his hand from that moment the general's house was at murat's disposal the news of the king's arrival had hardly been handed about the neighborhood before officers of all ranks hastened to viscovato veterans who had fought under him corsican hunters who were attracted by his adventurous character in a few days the general's house was turned into a palace the village into a royal capital the island into a kingdom strange rumors were heard concerning murat's intentions an army of nine hundred men helped to give them some amount of confirmation it was then that blancard donadieu and Langlada took leave of him murat wished to keep them but they had been vowed to the rescue of the exile not to the fortunes of the king we have related how murat had met one of his former mamelukes a man called othello on board the bastia mailboat othello had followed him to Viscovato, and the ex-king of naples considered how to make use of him family relations recalled him naturally to castellamare and murat ordered him to return there entrusting to him letters for persons on whose devotion he could depend othello started and reached his father-in-law safely and thought he could confide in him but the latter was horror-struck and alarmed the police who made a descent on othello one night and seized the letters the next day each man to whom a letter was addressed was arrested and ordered to answer murat as if all was well and to point out salerno as the best place for disembarking five out of seven were dastards enough to obey the two remaining who were two spanish brothers absolutely refused they were thrown into a dungeon however on the seventeenth september murat left viscovato general franceschidi and several corsican officers served as escort he took the road to ijaccio by Catone, the mountains of serra and bosco venaco and vivaro by the gorges of the forest of Vetzenovo and where uh, he was received and feted like a king everywhere and at the gates of the towns he was met by deputations who made him speeches, and saluted him with the title of Majesty. At last, on the 23rd September, he arrived at Ajaccio. The whole population awaited him outside the walls, and his entry into the town was a triumphal procession. He was taken to the inn, which had been fixed upon beforehand by the quartermasters. It was enough to turn the head of a man less impressionable than Murat. As for him, he was intoxicated with it, as he went into the inn he held out his hand to Franceschetti. you see he said what the neapolitans will do for me by the way the corsicans receive me it was the first mention which had escaped him of his plans for the future and from that very day he began to give orders for his departure they collected ten little feluccas a maltese named barbara former captain of a frigate of the neapolitan navy was appointed commander-in-chief of the expedition two hundred and fifty men were recruited and ordered to hold themselves in readiness for the first signal murat was only waiting for the answers to othello's letters they arrived on the afternoon of the twenty-eighth murat invited all his officers to a grand dinner and ordered double pay and double rations to the men the king was at dessert when the arrival of monsieur Massaroni was announced to him He was the envoy of the foreign powers who brought Murat the answer which he had been awaiting so long at Toulon. Murat left the table and went into another room. Monsieur Masseroni introduced himself as charged with an official mission and handed the king, the Emperor of Austria's ultimatum. It was couched in the following terms. Monsieur Masseroni is authorized by these presents to announce to King Joachim that His Majesty the Emperor of Austria will afford him shelter in his states, on the following terms. 1. The king is to take a private name. The queen, having adopted that of Lepano, it is proposed that the king should do likewise. 2. It will be permitted to the king to choose a town in Bohemia, Moravia, or the Tyrol, as a place of residence. He could even inhabit a country house in one of these same provinces without inconvenience. 3. The king is to give his word of honor to his imperial and royal majesty, that he will never leave the states of Austria without the express permission of the emperor, and that he is to live like a private gentleman of distinction, but submitting to the laws in force in the states of Austria. In attestation whereof, and to guard against abuse, the undersigned has received the order of the emperor to sign the present declaration, signed Prince of Metternich, Paris." 1st September, 1815 Murat smiled as he finished reading, then he signed to Monsieur Massaroni to follow him. He led him on to the terrace of the house, which overlooked the whole town, and over which a banner floated as it might on a royal castle. From thence they could see Ajaccio all gay and illuminated, the port with its little fleet, and the streets crowded with people as if it were a fete day. Hardly had the crowd set eyes on Murat before a universal cry arose: "Long live Joachim, brother of Napoleon, long live the King of Naples!" Murat bowed, and the shouts were redoubled, and the garrison band played the national airs. Monsieur Masseroni did not know how to believe his own eyes and ears. When the king had enjoyed his astonishment, he invited him to go down to the drawing room, his staff were there, all in full uniform. One might have been at Céserte or at Capo Monte. At last, after a moment's hesitation, Masseroni approached Murat. Sir, he said, what is my answer to be to his majesty, the Emperor of Austria? Sir, answered Murat, with the lofty dignity which sat so well on his fine face, tell my brother Francis, what you have seen and heard, and add that I am setting out this very night to reconquer my kingdom of Naples. End of chapter 2. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.